Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to church. Uh, the Bible's been read, and it would be helpful if you have your Bible open at the letter of to the Romans. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and chapter 3, and I'm going to be preaching from verse 21 to 26. Please join me as I pray. Our Father God in heaven, it is your purpose and your influence in our life that we should love you more and be committed to serve you in this world. Please use this brief time we have together, Heavenly Father, to cause us to love you more and to be committed to your service, we pray. And we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. When I was in primary school, my favourite primary school teacher was a man by the name of Mr Durago, and he taught us our multiplication tables. And back there in fourth class, he told us that he was actually getting us ready for the leaving certificate, preparing us for our final exams, which were still seven or eight years away. Life is about preparation. We have an apprenticeship in order to get our trade. We go to university to get our career. We do preparation for marriage courses. We do preparation for parenting courses. We even do preparation for retirement courses. But we will not all get married. We won't all be parents and we won't all get to retire. But we will all die. Can you imagine if outside our church in Lyons Road we put up a big sign that said, prepare to die courses of study available? I wonder how people would respond to that. There seems to be a conspiracy of silence when it comes to death. And yet, according to surveys, most Australians say they wish that someone would talk to, to them more about death. But we don't talk about it. Yet we as Christians are the death specialists. We know what death involves. We are the experts in dying. A friend of mine who was a pastor, when he used to fly on planes as a passenger, if someone asked him who was sitting next to him, what do you do for a living? He would say, I prepare people to die. Probably not the best thing to say on an air aircraft. But it's right that Christian pastors, the Christian church knows about death. It knows how to die and it prepares people to die. God says what we all know to be true, that it is appointed for us all to die. There's no argument with that. But then God says, after that comes the judgment, that beyond death, we will all have our day in court, and it is as certain that we will have our day in court as we will die. And there is one book in the Bible particularly that tells us how to be ready for our day in court. And it's this letter by the Apostle Paul to the Romans because the theme of this letter is righteousness, how to have a right standing with the God who will judge us. And the word righteousness has a double meaning. My name is David Cook. Cook can be used as a noun. That is, I am a cook in the local cafe, or it can be used as a verb. I am going to cook a meal. And righteousness is like that. How can I have a right standing with God? And when God uses that noun as a verb, it is translated justify. God declares that we have a right standing with him. God justifies us. Now, the Australian New Testament scholar, most esteemed by the name of Leon Morris, said that this paragraph, chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21 to 26, is perhaps the most significant paragraph ever written. 
and it is hard to argue. Look at how it starts there in verse 21. But now, clear contrast. Paul, you see, has exhausted his secretary. In the first part of this letter, he has shown us that none of us have a right standing with God. The pagan doesn't have a right standing with God. The secularist doesn't have a right standing with God. The moralist doesn't have a right standing with God. The unreached person doesn't have a right standing with God. And not even the Jew has a right standing with God. And that can be summed up in that little verse 23 in our reading. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Paul's summary of everything that he has said thus far. And he proves his point, if you go back just a few verses, by referring referring to six bodily parts to show that we all fall short of God's glory. Look at verse 13. He speaks about the throat, the tongue, the lips. Our throats are places of uncleanness. Our tongues are places of deception. Our lips are places of poison. Look at verse 14. He goes on. And notice they're all this area of our, our, our body. Verse 14, our mouths. Our mouths are full of habitual cursing. Verse 15, our feet. Our feet are swift to shed innocent blood. We shed blood as a first option, not as a last. And all this comes back to verse 18. Because our eyes, which are the windows of our soul, there is no fear of God before our eyes. So Paul summed up in verse 19 and 20. Have a look at it there. We are all accountable to God and God's law, the Ten Commandments, is no help to us. He says no one will be justified, declared right before God. No one can prepare for their day in court by keeping God's law because we cannot do it. That's what the Ten Commandments are there for. They're not there to provide a solution. It's as though if I go to my doctor and I've got a fever and he puts a thermometer in my mouth and he says, oh, you do have a fever. Well, what should I do about it, doc? He says, take the thermometer home and take your temperature three times a day for the next week and then come back and see me. But that's no solution. That's just underlining to me that I've got a problem. And the Ten Commandments are like that. They don't give me the solution. They don't prepare me for my day in court. They will actually accuse me because I couldn't do them. They tell me that I have a problem. If we prepare for our day in court by standing on our record, and I don't have such a bad record, but my record and your record is our problem. Verse 23, we are short of God's glory. And yet Paul opens this letter by saying, I've got momentous news for you, but this is not momentous news telling me that all of us, including me, all of us are naturally condemned. But now he comes to the momentous news. Look at verse 21, but now, Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, the way of being in the right with God has been revealed. We didn't make it up. Paul didn't make it up. We could never have thought this way up. And he says there in verse 21 that the law and the prophets, his way of referring to the whole of the Old Testament, anticipates this way. It's been craning its neck to see when this way will be revealed. Verse 22, this righteous standing, he says, comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So how can you be right with the God who you will meet in judgment? Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by being united to Jesus that makes us right. 
And before Paul tells us how this works, he reminds us again in verse 23 that this applies to all of us. For all of us have sinned and like the arrow short of the target, we fall short of the glory of God. Now that means that the best of us morally, it's as though we're on the top of the Alps and the worst of us morally are at the bottom of a mine shaft. But both people are equally unable to reach the stars. All of us have a problem, the best, the worst, and the middle of us. We are short of God's glory. And so Paul comes in this brilliant paragraph. And remember, he could have written in highfalutin, sophisticated, uh, classical Greek. But he dictates, and it is written in what is called common Greek, koine Greek, Greek for the average person. And Paul uses three terms here, which were in everyday use, a, a, a term from the law court, a term from the business world, and a term from the religious temple world. So he wants the average person, you and me, to understand what he is saying. So now we come to verse 24. And he says, we're short of the glory of God, but now we are justified, he said. Here is the term from the law court. We are declared by God the judge to be in the right and that's not based on how we feel. It's based on God's declaration. He says that you are in the right with him. Now, how can that be? Well, look at verse 24. Paul says that this is by grace as a gift. It is unearned. It is not an award. We are not worthy of it. It is contrary to our desert. Now, in our first parish of Weewar, we lived in the Presbyterian Manse, and one early one morning, about 2am, I heard that someone was in the back room of the manse. We hadn't invited anybody in. I checked that the family was all asleep. I went out to the back room. I saw that the door was closed, but the light was on, and there was movement under the, under the door. With my heart in my mouth, I opened the door and there was a complete stranger standing in our house. I said, you've broken and entered into my house. He said, oh, I'm in the wrong house, am I? I said, you are, and I'm going to ring the police and get them to take you away. Oh, please be merciful, he said. And I was prepared to be merciful. I was prepared to withhold the punishment that was due to that man for breaking into my house. And he said, oh, thanks very much. Wouldn't have $10 on you, would you? So before he left, he wanted me to be gracious. He wanted to reward him for breaking into my house. You see, mercy withholds punishment deserved. Grace gives blessing or favour contrary to deserving. And Paul makes it clear right here at the very beginning that what we deserve in verse 23 is condemnation. But what we get, verse 24, is actually justification. It is forgiveness and it is righteousness credited to us. I need to be right. I need to have righteousness to stand before God, the judge. And it is credited to me by grace. Justification by his grace as a gift. But how can God do this and still be a credible judge? How can he do this and not be a crooked or corrupt judge? He knows that I'm short and now he's declaring that I'm in the right. And yet if you go down to verse 25, you see that Paul says that in this way, God is demonstrating his righteous justice. And in verse 26, 
God is showing his righteousness. So how can he be just and declare sinners, those who fall short, in the right with him? Well, look at verse 24. The second word he uses is the word from the business world. It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redeem means to buy something back, something which has fallen into bondage, something which has fallen into slavery, to buy that something back. And of course, we have fallen into slavery and bondage to our own wickedness. And the price to buy us back is a perfect life offered in payment, a a perfect life which pays the penalty of our sin. And Jesus, of course, comes and lives the perfect life. The worst his enemies could say about Jesus is that he lives with the, eats with the wrong kinds of people. There's no controversial accusations about Jesus. He dies as a perfect life in payment of my fines which are due to me. He pays the penalty of sin, which is death. He pays the debt which he did not owe. I owed that debt which I could not pay. And so it's on the basis of the redemptive work of Jesus that God declares that I am in the right. Now that means that God has a double claim on you and me as Christians. He has a right of ownership because he created us, but now he has a right of ownership as well because he redeemed us and bought us back with a price, the perfect life of my redeemer, the Lord Jesus But there's a third word, and it's there in verse 25, and it's the word from the temple. It's the word from the religious world that God put forward Jesus, it says, as a propitiation by his blood. What is a propitiation? It is a sacrifice, and God pours his wrath on the sacrifice. Wrath which was due to you and me is expressed, but it falls on Jesus who absorbs that wrath on my behalf. In other words, God propitiates himself, his own wrath in sending his son to stand in our place and bear the wrath that is due to us. He bears the wrath I deserved, but he bears it. And Paul is saying, this is by revelation. This is what the Christian gospel, this is the momentous news. This is what's so good about it. The basis of our being in the right with God is the redeeming, propitiating sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Sin is paid for. The judge declares that we are in the right on the basis of what Jesus has done. But look at verse 25. Because here Paul says that this is to be received by faith. And verse 26, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus And verse 22, go back there. It's through faith. It is faith which unites us to Jesus. And what is this faith? Faith is confidence. Faith is trust. Faith is dependence. Faith is relying not on me and my record, but on him. There's a film which starred Liam Nelson. And Liam Nelson was a specialist doctor who had very little bedside manner. He had very few friends but he had one other doctor who was a friend. And the doctor received the bad diagnosis that he had to have major surgery and it was possible that he wouldn't survive the surgery. His only friend, another doctor, comes up and says, do you want me to go into the operating theatre with you? 
And Liam Nelson, the doctor, says, no, I don't want you to go with me. I want you to go instead of me so that I don't have to go. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. He is my substitute. He is my redeemer. He absorbs the wrath from the father that I deserved. God takes my sin so seriously that he sends his only son so that our sin might be dealt with. And friends, it's by grace. I don't deserve it. And it's through faith in Jesus, not in me, not in my morality, not in the church, but it's trusting in Jesus. Do you know how to break a pastor's heart? A pastor who's preached this momentous news to us for so many years. And that pastor may well come to our deathbed. And as he's standing there, you look up to him and you say, oh, Mr. Cook, I don't know whether I've done enough. You haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. It's not about you. That's what the children's talk was about this morning, wasn't it? I had a, a message from a friend who said, I've just told my children about N-E. Isn't it wonderful? And I messaged back and said, N-E is wonderful. It's not about what you do. That's every other religion. But God's Christianity, the Christianity of the Bible, says it's about what God has done, D-O-N-E. And that comes to us by revelation. It's manifested, Paul says, it's not invented. It's what God says. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, upon another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Jesus Christ is to be our all. And that's what Paul's explaining in this paragraph, probably the most vitally important paragraph ever written. And he goes on and he defends it and he illustrates it in chapter 4. But dear friends, I want to say to you today, we will all have our day in court and God won't take that day lightly. God will stand before you in judgment. And if you turn up and say, well, here's my record, I haven't been such a bad bloke. God will say something like, well, why do you think I sent my son? I was hoping you'd be merciful. I will be just and I'd delight to be merciful if you respected the sacrifice of my son by trusting in him and living for him. I was just hoping I'd be good enough. Well, then the question is, if that is what you believe being a Christian is, why did Easter happen if it's all about you trying to be good enough? It's all about the fact that we couldn't be good enough. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God sends Jesus to redeem you and to propitiate his own wrath so that on that basis, when you are linked to Jesus in solidarity by faith, God can declare that you're in the right with him. It will be too late on judgment day to cry for mercy. Now is the day of mercy. Do you have faith in Jesus? Now, what is faith? Faith is always, one, a conviction. Jesus paid for my sin. Jesus gave his life for me. That's the conviction of faith. But that conviction is always backed up 
by a commitment. Isn't that the case? Abraham was told to leave his homeland. He believed that God had spoken to him and the commitment shows itself that he left his homeland. Noah was told by God, that was his conviction, that God had warned a flood was coming. And his commitment was that he built the ark. And so that is the way it is. The people of God, uh, they were told to enter the promised land and they were told to march around Jericho. They believed that God told them that. That's their conviction. And their commitment was that they did march around Jericho and it collapsed into their hands. A conviction. He died in my place. And it's a commitment that my life, the life I have, I now live for him. So isn't that interesting? That a sermon really, a passage really, about how to prepare for death shows us how we are to live. We are to live by faith in Jesus. We are to live by trusting Jesus. And that is having a conviction about who Jesus is and what he has done. And having a commitment that the life I live, I should live for him who gave his life for me. Friends, it's about Jesus alone. A new book has come out recently with a great title. I'm not sure about the book, but here's the title. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add anything to Jesus in order to make your right with God, you won't get anything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing, Jesus alone, equals everything. As a dying man, this is my message to dying people. Here it is. The judge you will meet is the justifier of the one who has faith, conviction, commitment, in Jesus. Are you ready for the inevitable? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, keep reminding us of these truths as we live day by day in a world which somehow wants to talk about them but doesn't want to hear about them. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll deliver us from the foolishness of thinking that life here is going to go on endlessly. Thank you for telling us that preparing for that day is all about trusting in Jesus. And by trusting in Jesus, we see how we are to live now. We give our lives for him who gave his life for each of us. And we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.